My loneliness is killing me and I, I must confess, confess you never were really here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sams. And you're listening to Deep Cut. His loneliness is killing him. It's true. Mm. There it is. There it is. Ba bam. That's our episode. Thanks for listening. Catch <laughs> us next week. Catch <laughs> us next week. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. So, when we started Deep Cut, there were three directors who I knew right away that I wanted to discuss. The first was Hirokazu Koreeda, who we talked about in our first episode. The next was Oscar Farhadi, who we studied towards the end of last season. And today on Deep Cut, we discuss the work of Lynn Ramsey, starting with 2017's Moody, vigilante thriller, You Were Never Really Here. Does this mean you're done after this? Yeah. yeah I <laughs> this is your last <laughs> It your sounds last like you're episode. like done after this. I dissipate into a fine dust. Mr. Yap, I don't feel so good. And then I just fade away. <laughs> so I first encountered Ramsey's work through the YouTube video essay series Every Frame a Painting, created by Tony Joe and Taylor Ramos, and their video entitled Lynn Ramsey, The Poetry of Details. I then went to watch We Need to Talk About Kevin, and I felt a kind of awe. I thought something like, oh, this is what film is. This is what it's about. This is mm. what it can do. And that feeling hasn't really changed for me. I think that Ramsey demonstrates a sort of platonic ideal of cinema, of how to use image and sound to convey emotion, story, and character. Clearly, I hold Ramsey and her work in high regard. She's the first director whose entire filmography I set out to watch, including her short films. So tell me, guys, how close are you with Lynn? Not as close as you, <laughs> you weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> I am a pretty big Ramsey fan, considering that I've only seen two features in one short. You Were Never Really Here was the first Ramsey feature I saw, and I was really lucky to see it in a theater and was completely immersed without having known anything about what the movie was about, except for Joaquin Phoenix is in it. From that, I went on to watch her short, Small Deaths, which I think was like a mm. grad school short that she did, which really blew me away because while You're Never Really Here really shows a director who is like in her groove and understands how to put together like sound and image in a really unique way and a very um, attention-grabbing way. The way that she does that in a scaled-down version in Small Deaths it was really great for me to watch back then because I was like getting ready to, to make a few short films. Mm. Just her imagining of space and how you can communicate space, not just visually in terms of the short choices you use to like frame a room or a person in a room, but also the sound editing and the sound mixing, like what you mix higher up in the like in the room tone or in just the static of the room. And building up from there, and you, this 
continues on to You Were Never Really Here, which is a very dialogue-sparse movie. (laughs) But I think the audio side of the film contains multitudes, not just from the incredible Johnny Greenwood score, but also with the sound editing and mixing. And I'm excited to talk about that. And I've also seen uh, Morvern Keller, which I want to shout out to being really, really great and engaging and, and like fucked up in the best way possible. <laughs> Thank you. Wilson. That's an excellent touchstone for so many topics that we can dive into. <laughs> fucked up stuff? Okay. <laughs> How about you, Ben? Um, I haven't seen Morvern Keller, but the other Ramsey film I've seen is We Need to Talk About Kevin, mm. which is, I believe, our next film in the series this is your deep cut pick right yes Um, spoiler alert spoiler alert another spoiler is i probably at least in my memory prefer we need to talk about kevin but i'd love to get into that when we talk about that film on the next episode i think my i was gonna say my relationship with ramsey which sounded really weird (laughs) (laughs) my connection with ramsey's work is minimal but strong Mm. Mm. i think she has such a strong idea of what she's trying to do with the medium and i wouldn't say that it is especially unique but it's singular in a sense i don't know it doesn't make sense it does she's trying to use the medium of film to create montage, which is kind of the basic way that we look at films now. Like we think of films as series of shots and she's really trying to milk this idea of what can I do with a series of shots? Mm-hmm. And I just finished watching You Were Never Really Here and the editing and the shot choices were the things that really stuck out to me and also to use the sound, which feel very specific in trying to convey character interiority in a very specific visceral way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that feels singular about her because... Not many directors are trying to do it in the way that she's doing it. And as you say, Wilson, with very little dialogue, really trying to do her best to show, not tell, which is actually very difficult. Surprisingly, in film, it's very difficult to say a lot without saying anything. Mm-hmm. And I think with You Were Never Really Here, she's really trying to push that as far as she can. I think I have some reservations now after seeing this for, I think, the third time about how successful it is. But I would love to get into that. But I think as the title of that Every Frame Painting video suggests, she's so good with details. Mm-hmm. Yes. And using details to create a world that is within a room or within yeah. a very confined space. Mm-hmm. And the thing I keep thinking about is recently I've been thinking about how novels don't work well as films and short stories do hmm. work well as films. Short stories being turned into feature films. Mm-hmm. And someone tell me more about this, but apparently this is based on a book. And this feels like it's based on one paragraph of story (laughs) and then really stretched out with all its details. That's what it feels like. But apparently it's based on a book. So somebody give me some sense of what she's adapting. (laughs) Absolutely. We're going to get into that. It's funny that you mentioned that about short stories because... In my research, I was reading an interview with Ramsey where she talks about how her short films that she made as a student are based on short stories that she wrote. So she definitely recognizes the economy of story. And as you're saying, Ben, she totally recognizes the psychic space that can be created out of physical space. Mm. These are all things that we're going to touch back on in our conversation in this episode and in the next, which, yes, will be on We Need to Talk About Kevin. We need to talk about... We need to talk about Kevin. (laughs) We really need to talk about Kevin? (laughs) Yeah, we do! (laughs) We really need to talk about... We really need to talk about Kevin. Or is it we we need to talk? We don't really need to talk about it. We just need to talk about it. Yes. (laughs) I need to talk about Kevin. Okay, this joke has run its course. 
or has it? Evan. We don't we'll need do to talk it. about this joke. <laughs> Watch us do it again next episode. Oh, we will. <laughs> so we need to talk about Ramsey's biography. <laughs> Lynn Ramsey was born on December 5th, 1969 in Glasgow, Scotland. Her family was working class and she says she had a happy childhood. Early films that she cites as influential on her childhood were The Wizard of Oz from 1939 and Deep Cut's own Don't Look Now, which she watched at eight years old. (laughs) That'll fuck you up. (laughs) Yeah, that really will. Too young for that movie. (laughs) That's sexy? Man. (laughs) What? (laughs) She describes being transported and immersed by the worlds of both films and especially the menace of both films. Mm -hmm. I think that translates into her later work for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. She studied photography at Napier College in Edinburgh. She says, quote, As a photographer, you're constantly looking at people, their eyes, hands, how they walk, their mannerisms, and that's great for characterization. Also in framing, by what you omit and what you include, you can say something about the scene through tiny details, end quote. That is a great encapsulation of some of her strengths, mm-hmm. and we're going to expand on that. A photography teacher of hers screened Maya Deren's 1943 short, Meshes of the Afternoon, which inspired Ramsey to apply to the National Film and Television School in England. In the 1990s, at school, she honed her style with four excellent short films, including the one that Wilson mentioned, Small Deaths. And that built up to her first feature film in 1999, Rat Catcher, which is about a young Scottish boy who's troubled by a drowning. He failed to stop. <laughs> I feel like there's just like no, no, no happy Ramsey films. <laughs> it's just like, uh... You had a happy childhood? Question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In 2002, she directed Samantha Morton in Morvern Kalar, perhaps Ramsey's most narratively experimental movie, and that's about a woman who travels and ponders after her boyfriend commits suicide. Another upbeat little story. Nice. Yeah, great. In 2013, she directs Tilda Swinton in We Need to Talk About Kevin, and then 2017 brings today's movie, You Were Never Really Here. So first, let's get onto the table some of her directorial tendencies. Mm. First thing that I want to mention is that there's often what I would call obfuscation of plot and obfuscation of thought. So there is minimal dialogue, as Wilson is mentioning, there's restrained performances, and there's not a lot of expositional clarity on exactly what's happening and what people are thinking as they're doing what they're doing. She also often uses actors that are either non-professional or feel non-professional and hide more than they reveal or are good at conveying things without typical performative gestures and strategies. Hmm. Next thing that I want to bring up is a richness of emotion through deep, intense portrayal of subjectivity. She often talks about using one visual or sonic detail at a time. Mm -hmm. She often works in these close-ups that sometimes a whole scene is strung together through what in other movies might just be insert shots of details of hands accomplishing a task. She often talks about how details are saying everything about the scene. Mm-hmm. Tony Joe in his Every Frame of Painting video says that, quote, the entire story is implied through these detail shots, end quote. She also uses subjective editing, cuts that are timed to convey emotional state, and associative juxtaposition of images back to back. This is the directorial tendency that I see the most drawing from Rogue's work and, and Don't Look Now in its subjective editing. Hmm. Absolutely. In terms of close-ups, that's something that she often attributes to Robert Brisson. Mm. Think of A Man Escaped, where the whole story is conveyed through the process of this man accomplishing small tasks, tying rope with his hands. 
things like that that both drive the plot and convey emotion, where the performance is very restrained. Finally, Ramsey often returns to themes of grief and trauma and the lingering, self-regenerative effects of violence. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> it's such dark material, but she just feels in her element there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, if you want to, if you want to stay there, you just stay there. You can stay there. It's interesting what you said about obfuscation of thought, because when you think about what she does, yes, she doesn't say a lot in terms of exposition, but when you look at how she uses flashbacks, flashbacks are by their very nature an expression of a thought. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that really interesting thinking about you were never really here this time because so much of it is her expressing Joe's thoughts where he flashes back to traumatic memories. Mm -hmm. She's trying to create a picture of his kind of PTSD and the things that he is remembering. And although you don't necessarily understand the images that you see, you kind of have like a, like a direct intravenous... <laughs> line into his thoughts mm. in yeah. their purest form which is just things that he sees yes so I, I i don't really see it as an obfuscation of thought i feel it as mm. kind of the opposite but still unclear which is which is very strange perhaps a more accurate term would be unexplained plot and unexplained thought yes right unspoken yes and i think that also carries through with, as you were saying, with her as a photographer, the use of omission in visuals. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that I was mulling over in the current immediate aftermath of watching the film is all the things that she doesn't show you. For a film that has so much violence, she implies most of it and she shows you more of the aftermath rather than the violence itself. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is interesting. And most of the time, the immediate ap aftermath. Just yeah. like a second after, like, the hit is made with a hammer or something, and you just see the guy on the ground. But capturing that moment right after and not capturing the moment itself sometimes is more powerful than showing the, the impact. Mm -hmm. I think specifically with this film, the omission of seeing certain acts of violence is somewhat jarring because as you were saying before Eli there is a regenerative power to violence especially in I mean she's not American but especially in American films yes especially in American narratives mm -hmm. where violence is used as a way to find catharsis and to to make a conclusive point using violence mm. and by omitting the moment of violence where a gunshot hits somebody or when a physical attack hit somebody there's a feeling like she's pulling back from you she's not showing you the thing that might give you some satisfaction mm. right and that's a very interesting choice that i haven't really fully contended with mm -hmm. because there's a lot of this feeling of being robbed of that moment which makes me sound very violent <laughs> but <laughs> like you think about when he is in the house after finding that his mother was killed he shoots two men but you never you don't see them get shot mm-hmm and you see what happens after when he interrogates the guy. I mean, he gets to kick him a little bit, but he is surprisingly, in a way, tender with the dying dude that she's trying to kill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a point here, but it's just these things that are just really sticking out to me and I'm finding hard to really think of how to take them. And I think it is the reason why some people didn't really know how to deal with this movie as well. Mm. I have some thoughts. <laughs> I love to hear them. <laughs> Let's frame You Were Never Really Here first and then hop back into this conversation about violence. 
So Ben, you were correct. It is an adaptation of Jonathan Ames' 2013 novella of the same name. It is a pulpy, fast little novel, which Ramsey really liked, and she agreed with Ames that she wanted to keep that propulsiveness, and she challenged herself to convey scenes as efficiently as possible. She wrote the first draft in four weeks with Joaquin Phoenix's image as her screensaver. (laughs) Something that was important to her from the get-go was that she wanted to use what she calls splinters of images rather than a backstory. Mm. I think that's a really interesting idea. And it speaks to what Ben was saying about how, in a way, the lack of expositional clarity in these backstory flashbacks allows us a more direct emotional portal to Joe's headspace. Mm. The production was pretty limited. It was 31 days in the August of 2016, which was 18 months after Lynn Ramsey's daughter was born. Wild. There were half days to shoot action sequences, so she had to plan and think economically. But still, she often did a lot of things alongside Phoenix, like weighing hammers to make sure they felt right, (laughs) getting into the Russian baths with him. And she was the one who threw the fake blood in Phoenix's face at the hotel. Yeah, Lynn. So let's start talking a little bit about the violence, because this is maybe the thing about You Were Never Really Here that might impress me the most. Think about a movie like Taxi Driver. Oh, we're going there. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Off the bat. (laughs) Because, okay, let's go. There are a lot of similarities, right? A man who is lonely and unhinged and reaching a breaking point in his life that leads him to inflict violence for a righteous cause, but in a way that feels corrupt and dirty, right? Yes. In this movie, something similar is happening. But whereas in Taxi Driver, we get to celebrate Travis Bickle's violence against the men who run and solicit prostitution from Jodie Foster's character, in You Were Never Really Here, we do not get to celebrate that violence. There's no glorification. It does not run the risk of misinterpretation. I'm not saying this necessarily to criticize Taxi Driver. I think that it's pretty clear on what's right and wrong, but you do see a lot of misinterpretation of Taxi Driver Mm. from things like inspiring the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, who, side note, I don't like at all, (laughs) to movies that are directly descended from Taxi Driver, like Joker, Mm. and a million other pieces of pop culture that take the wrong lessons from Taxi Driver. Instead of saying, look at how messed up this guy is and how violence doesn't fulfill him, they misinterpret Taxi Driver and say, it worked. Right. And he got to take agency and feel power and clean up a bit of the city. Yeah. I think that's the wrong message. Yes. Ramsey does not run this risk. She breaks the violence into three sections. She describes the first section in which Joe infiltrates the prostitution house as mechanical violence. We see it black and white through CCTV footage. Mm. The camera cuts around. The music jump cuts to mess with both physical space and temporal space. We are held at a distance. This is Joe doing his job. The next sequence when Governor Williams' men come after Joe and his loved ones is what Lynn Ramsey describes as more personal. Mm. It's coming home. It's affecting Joe. It's taking away the things and people that he loves. And we experience that violence more viscerally because it is done against him. The third sequence is what Ramsey describes as post-rage. We expect a buildup and there's a lot of work that the score and sound are doing to build us into the sequence when Joe infiltrates Governor Williams' mansion and we start seeing the aftermath of his violence, expecting the big blowout of violence against Governor Williams, but his catharsis is undercut and all he can do is kind of freak out and cry. The other thing that's happening is that Nina is the one who has taken over the act of violence as an attempt at purification and calming oneself. 
So just as Joaquin Phoenix's character, Joe, has experienced violence throughout his life and has turned to enacting violence against others, whether or not it's against a deserving target, and that does not bring him peace, Nina has now stepped into that cycle. And I think the only optimistic thing about the ending is that they have each other now and they have shared experience, but Ramsey is very deliberate about not letting an American audience enjoy and find catharsis in the violence, just as Joe does not. As Ramsey puts it, quote, there's no ballet to it, end quote. Mm. I think that that is the most important aspect of You Were Never Really Here, and why I hold it up as a tremendously important movie experience that takes away the catharsis of violence and the inherent glorification of seeing violence on screen. It is literally just that quotation that there's no ballet to it. It's one of the most successful statements about real-life violence that I've seen in a movie, period. Mm. There's a very concerted effort to desensationalize the violence. Yes. Like, in some ways, to not show it or to, to deaden the effect of the violence. Like, you don't see her amplifying the sounds of violence. If anything, she de-emphasizes it. When you talk about the surveillance footage, the surveillance footage is one of the key moments where the violence, you're being put on the outside, right? Mm -hmm. Off the violence itself. It's so funny that you say that, Ben, because after the Cannes screening, which was infamously rushed, they didn't have much time to prepare the film before the Cannes screening in 2017. Ramsey went back into the sound mix and lowered the sound of the hammer blows. Mm. She is literally lowering the sound of the violence, as you're saying. You can barely hear what's going on with the violence. And it's mainly the score that you hear. The diegetic music of Angel Baby. I'm not sure what the name of the song is. (laughs) And that's really interesting because it doesn't give you that rhythm of violence. When we talk about action movies, we always talk about rhythm. We always talk about how they make violence feel good. And we love movies for that. And here she's specifically not giving you that satisfaction. You talked about the sonic messing of temporal space in that sequence where when we cut between the different surveillance angles the song skips back a little bit yes right which is a way to mess with the rhythm of the song and also the rhythm of the scene and so you're kind of always kept on edge and you're never really given a chance to soak into the rhythm of the movie the movie is trying to destabilize you Mm -hmm. because joe is also unstable and i i think that's really interesting because as i was watching it i wasn't sure if the feeling i was feeling like a visceral feeling was feeling which was a feeling of just constant unease was because of the movie or because of the tea i was drinking that was making me jittery (laughs) (laughs) it was very confusing and i really do think it's the film because so many choices that she makes are about making you feel a little gasp Mm. i'm thinking now also of the scene at the end when he infiltrates the mansion there is this sequence where he walks towards the mansion and she does that shot with a series of wide shots of Joe that intercuts with shots of, if I'm not mistaken, shots of inside the house. And so she would show you one angle of Joe at some place outside the house and she doesn't give you very strong indicators of the layer of the outside. And he's walking, she cuts away, she cuts back and then he has jumped too much space for the amount of time that has been given in the time that you've cut away. And I found that really interesting because it feels like you're lurching forward. Yeah. Like every time you come back to Joe, he's he's kind of moved faster than you expect. And sometimes there's even like a a dead body next to him. There's dead people. (laughs) Correct. 
And, and it's destabilizing and keeps you on your toes in a way that actually isn't fun. It's not a fun movie to watch in that sense. No, it's not. You know, no. and it's great. That's the thing that might trip a lot of people up because it doesn't feel satisfying to watch. It is specifically unsatisfying to mm-hmm. take away catharsis. And yes, it is. It's an odd choice. It's a very art film choice. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. But it really works for what she's trying to go for. Mm-hmm. Art film directors are very intentional about the movies that they that they choose to make. Mm-hmm. And I think Ramsey making You Were Never Really Here in the summer of 2016, in sort of like response to so many mainstream like Hollywood action flicks like taken, like just like your classic like revenge thriller films where it is exactly as you describe where catharsis is gained through violence and how a lot of people who do watch those sort of movies in their own lives sort of link their own catharsis with exacting violence on other people Mm. and in my opinion not effective <laughs> as <laughs> but not in a way and not i'm not like being like video games are bad for you that sort of thing <laughs> but i think it is interesting that she chose this and also her as a female director focusing on this sort of troubled anti-hero type character of joe in which like a lot of male writers or directors like even like schrader with taxi driver would base our connection with Travis Bickle in how he is able to express his rage through like killing other people or um yes and that's how he like gets off and how he is able to connect to us as a viewer versus with you were never really here the strongest emotional connection that we have to Joe is through his grief and through his PTSD absolutely her recognizing that that is one of the demons that haunts him and like gets him to continue to like exact violence into other people really complicates this idea of this anti-hero who kills people for like a greater good and it makes all the the lives that he takes count even more because you can feel that he doesn't get joy out of it and he doesn't feel catharsis out of it and that as it should be because you're like harming other people (laughs) (laughs) i really like positioning it against the revenge thrillers of the 2010s whereas those movies make an exceptional protagonist out of exceptional strength Mm. ramsey makes a human protagonist out of his weakness Mm. yes I, I kind of want to go into the comparison with Taxi Driver, but maybe for not too long, because I think it's interesting because they do have similarities. But I think the comparison helps you understand this movie in a different way, because I had read a bunch of reviews that were kind of poo-pooing this movie, not because they were comparing to Taxi Driver, but using Taxi Driver as a reference point. I found that these two are very different movies because with Taxi Driver, what it is doing is actually placing you inside Travis's head looking out at the world. A lot of taxi drivers, about him in his taxi, looking at the world, talking about how the streets are dirty, saying he wants to clean it up. It's trying to help you understand Travis from inside his head looking out. Mm-hmm. Whereas I find that with You Were Never Really Here, I feel like the subject is more about just Joe. Mm. Even when you're inside his head looking at stuff that he remembers or even looking at the things that he focuses on, like when he's looking at the tourist's mouths that triggers a memory. These things that he looks at isn't really about the world. It's all about him. Yes. And so it's really more of a character portrait in miniature rather than in Taxi Driver where it's 
not just a character portrait, but also there is some commentary about the world that he lives in. Right. And so that difference makes it really difficult to make that comparison with Taxi Driver because hmm. here she is so laser focused on just giving you Joe. I feel like I'm not seeing the world through Joe's eyes. I feel like I'm just seeing Joe. Mm. And even though I'm accessing his thoughts, I'm a little bit on the outside. We are following Joe, but there is actually less alignment with Joe in this movie than there is in Taxi Driver with Travis. And I say alignment not as an investment, but alignment as in like following him almost like you're next to him. I'm not sure if that makes the most sense, but it's the best way I can kind of look at it because I really felt like I was looking at Joe like a specimen, except I had access to his memories and to his thoughts. But I don't know if you guys agree. I like that a lot, Ben. I agree. Yeah. I agree as well. Okay. And I think that also is reflected in the how tight the narrative range is in mm. You Were Never Really Here. We are almost always with Joe and so much of scenes are shot in close-up, medium close-up, and inserts. Mm-hmm. I, I forgot what the term we we learned in film school was, <laughs> but, like, editing that, like, makes sense in sort of describing how a place, like a room, looks. Uh, oh, contiguous. Contiguous editing, yes, where the cuts sort of, like, make sense in your head where, where the camera is placed. Ramsey sort of, like, throws that out of the window. Right. Like, like she can shoot a camera from how wherever <laughs> different places in the room just as long as it looks nice and <laughs> it delivers that emotional punch. And I think that really reflects on how she wants the omission of information by shooting very tight most of the time and in a spatially confusing way. The important exception to what you're saying about narrative range and sticking to Joe's psychology is when we get peeks into Nina's psychology. Mm. One of the important links is we sometimes hear Joe's memory of him counting down from 15 as a child as a way of blocking out violence that's happening in his home. When we meet Nina, she's doing the same thing, and we're getting access to it in the same way through direct voiceover. Nonetheless, I do still agree with what Ben was saying about how these techniques, which on their own seem sort of subjective, allow us to look more at Joe than with Joe. Mm -hmm. But on the topic of sound, (laughs) let's have a sound editing corner. Yeah. Sponsored by Skip (laughs) Lipsy. And (laughs) Coca-Cola. So the sound designer on You Were Never Really Here is... Paul Davies, who has worked with Ramsey since the beginning of her career on all of her features. There are a few techniques that Davies innovated and used here to have that disorienting effect and to help us understand Joe's subjectivity while also remaining a little bit outside of it through disorientation. The one that is really fascinating to me is dislocation of sound coming out of different speakers in the theater. This is not something that you can really get at home, unfortunately, but Davies talks about how he went to an art exhibit at the Tate Museum in New York just before production, and he saw video screens that had different speakers playing different sounds. He used that effect where sounds in the same family, like sounds of a cityscape, would be playing individually out of different speakers, but with the same atmosphere underneath to make it kind of cohere, but kind of feel disorienting. You're getting assaulted by different sounds from different directions. Mm. There's also a lot of panning of sounds unnaturally across the speakers to disorient the viewer. Davies talks about what he calls selective sound, 
which is something that he pulls from sources like Brisson's A Man Escaped that are very in line with Ramsey's goals. You're focusing on one sound at a time. But if that's the norm for Ramsey's films, this feels a little different, right? While there are maybe singular focuses of sound, like a cityscape, it is very layered. Mm. And as I was looking into interviews with Davies, I found that he said this, which was interesting. Quote, both We Need to Talk About Kevin and You Are Never Really Here are multi-layered, multifaceted, fully using surround sound, and much more stylized, end quote. And he also says that the sound is more aggressive than Ramsey's earlier projects in You Are Never Really Here. Ramsey is evolving. And I remember at the time of this movie's release, Sean Baker, another indie filmmaker, said on Letterboxd that he misses the old Ramsey and this feels like a departure, hmm. which I don't think is fair to impose on Ramsey. And I also disagree. She's just using different stylistic techniques to different ends. And she's layering things a little bit differently with her collaborators. And it's boring when filmmakers don't evolve. Yeah. Hard to think of a reason why I would say this is a departure at all. Like It feels like Ramsey, maybe scaled down, but in a very aggressive way scaled down very aggressively <laughs> <laughs> there are also a lot of abrupt hard sound cuts there are fluctuating dynamics while joe's mother's house is what davies calls a quote haven of calm end quote there's just room sound and dialogue the outside world of new york city has traffic mixed unnaturally loud mm. and the cuts to the city are very hard and that's an easy way to access subjectivity, right? Like, or character interiority. Because once you as a viewer realize that the sound is heightened in any way, you you sort of, like, pick up on, oh, this is, like, sort of what Joe is, mm. ears are picking up on in the moment. And his, like, sense of dread and, and tension and horror. It's a little bit of the style in the sound, I think, kind of making itself known. And yes, there's a bit of a meta level there where like, because you feel like something has changed or something feels a bit different from reality, the editing of sound and sometimes image becomes not invisible. And when usually they try to be invisible, right. but by virtue of doing that, it clues you in into what the film is trying to do. Right. There's like a kind of a second level of watching and listening to this film, which is really interesting and i think that's why i kind of think of this film as a very strong formal exercise mm. in certain ways i think i mostly agree with that it is very form forward mm. yeah. i still think it is effective at carrying its story and the experience of looking at joe i agree with that but i think the story <laughs> is simple enough even if the emotions are not, the, the story is simple enough for her to push forward with form and emotion yeah. at most scenes. You were talking about the access into Nina's subjectivity with the counting down, which kind of clued me into something that I was thinking about. So I was reminded of why I watched this film twice, which is that the first time I watched it, I was like, eh. <laughs> That was kind of my reaction and I understand why I had the reaction and so I went in again because there was a bit of that FOMO and I was like, crap, am I an idiot for not liking this? So I went in again and I still think I kind of went with the tide mm. in terms of my second opinion. And so now I come in with a third opinion which is landing between <laughs> my first and second, which is very interesting. Where the thing that I felt was missing for me in this film is the emotional connection between the two characters. Hmm. 
But it's difficult because with such a sparse plot, it's very difficult to form a strong emotional bond between two characters. Mm -hmm. And for me, that made it difficult to sell that final scene where they become like two sort of kindred spirits in a sense trying to figure out their lives after that, after everything that they've gone through together, which is not that much really. So I was struggling to figure out why does Nina latch on to Joe? You know, it can't just be because he saves her. I don't think that's enough, especially when she has gone through such a traumatic experience with men. And that's the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around. But then when you talked about the subjectivity of the counting, I've been realizing on each watch that this film is about immersing within the psychic spaces of the characters. And this is a bit of an aside, but it kind of makes sense in how I kind of started thinking more about this movie, which is at a certain point in the movie when it cuts to Angel and his son getting killed. I was like a bit thrown out. I was like, oh, weird. We're not in Joe's subjectivity anymore. But then I realized, wait a minute, this is Joe imagining Angel and his son getting killed. And then I realized, wait, everything in this film is about Joe's subjectivity. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. And then that counting, when I started thinking in hindsight, felt like a sort of telepathy between the two characters. Like they were able to hear each other's thoughts. Hmm. And whether that's intentional or not is hard to say, but it, it kind of jumped out at me. It's not like I was trying to figure out what the meaning of the movie was, but it just kind of clicked hmm. where it makes sense that this is them hearing each other's thoughts I don't know if this is me reading too much into it, but it just felt like it made sense. And that helped me kind of consolidate and feel like that emotional bond mm. is something that is just beyond explaining. It's not something... Yeah. Yep. It is inexplicable. Yeah, it's and indescribable. It's a little bit of a crutch, I would say, but I forgive it. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm going to say. <laughs> I like that a lot, Ben. Yeah, I think one of the greatest like moments that showcase that is when Joe goes to bury his mom in the river mm. and he sort of has this moment where he's contemplating drowning himself in the river, but he hears Nina counting and I think himself also counting in his head. It plays over the, the soundscape and he decides to to stay put and, and try to save Nina. And I think that being the main reason that he decides not to take his life cements that relationship in my head. And I think also because we are so close with Joe, whatever is coming from like Nina's side in my head doesn't really, really need to be explained, but I bought into the indescribable connection that they have because it's sort of like pinged to us from the very beginning, from the counting down that starts off the movie, is that like they're already linked even before they meet each other through their shared experience. Mm. That underwater shot though. Yeah. yeah. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> this highlights another strength of Ramsey's, which is pattern making through motif. So the counting that opens the movie and puts us into Joe's headspace immediately is repeated to get us onto Nina's page and to get us to recognize that Nina and Joe are kindred spirits through their similar experiences. And it goes unexplained. There are other things that explain their connection, like the close-ups of Nina's wet hair in the hotel room and the close-ups of Joe's mother's hair as she descends into the lake mm. in the water. There's so many small details that don't have plot significance to show us exactly what a character's thinking, but they create an emotional continuity for the viewer. And I think that those things, even if they go unrecognized, that get us to feel that type of affinity and connection 
that Joe has towards Nina. Does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah, makes no, sense. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. I didn't even pick up on the fact that Nina's blonde hair dripping in water connects to that scene of him burying his mother. But even without me knowing this thing, that image of his mother's hair like swaying underwater had a lot of power that was hard to explain and then you kind of explain why it had powers because you have been fed a bunch of images in the previous parts of the film and she is embedding things in your mind without you mm. realizing it and i think yeah it's pretty crazy because she is trusting the medium to let her do this yes and it's a bit of a leap of faith because yeah. i can totally see this not working yeah and i'm sure it doesn't work for many people but yeah. if it gets its hooks in you then it will work yeah right well it's like so many directors like make films like they play checkers right they like always look within the scene right mm. but then like ramsey's like playing a whole different game she's playing chess. 4d chess she is, yeah she's literally <laughs> playing 4d chess she's just like oh this thing that happens at the start of the movie or this shot or this sound i'm gonna repeat it maybe 60% of the way through the movie. And we'll see if it works or not, but I'm, I'm going to like sort of like telepathically deliver that to you mm. and and see if, it, see if it hits you emotionally and you won't know, you won't understand why, but it'll just work. Yeah. Ramsey's collaborators are on the same page with her about that type of technique. Paul Davies talks about how he uses the sound of the train when Joe is on the LIRR towards the end of the movie. That train harmonic, that screech, appears in multiple places in the movie and is woven into the soundscape to convey Joe's stress and duress. Mm. These are things that, again, don't have literal one-to-one -one meaning, mm. but take on emotional associations and become recontextualized as they reappear in the movie. I always like when movies have to be studied and rewatched. And maybe that's part of why Ramsey speaks to me is because you feel the effect of these repetitions and these carefully stashed away clues and techniques. Mm. And then when you rewatch, you can pick up on these things and learn and see exactly how she's doing it. What is she doing? Right. That creates such a specific emotional result. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking now about the many scenes of Joe in a car. Yeah. And how she repeats the shots of him in the rearview mirror. And I can't really say what it does, but in my memory of watching the film, these scenes of Joe in the car feel continuous because he's always in anguish when he's in the car somehow. And <laughs> each time you go back, he's feeling more pain or like feeling something new. And they almost start to melt together in your memory. Mm. And even as you're watching the next new car scene, it feels like a continuation of the previous car scene. And she keeps repeating shots, types of shots in the car. It's quite difficult to explain what the effect is. Yeah. But that you see her doing this repetition with not just subject, but also objects and shot types, yeah. composition. And I think even the soundtrack sounds similar whenever he's mm. driving or riding in the car. Mm, possibly, yeah. There are a few cues that repeat and, again, lure you into a sense of Joe's going to do the badass thing. He's going to be the hero. And then it gets undercut. Mm. I love the way that Johnny Greenwood's score works in this movie. Yeah. It really sets you up and then delivers on its own without having you need to see the violent catharsis. Like, I think yeah. 
it is all in that score the aggression the the violence like you don't there there's no need for it to be like exerted or expressed elsewhere it's really interesting because i think the score in so many moments of the film sort of is working against what ramsey's trying to do with omitting and hmm. but i think it it sort of works as a as a counterbalance to that but i don't know what you guys think because i think it is a very like it is a very heavy-handed and brutal score from greenwood that relies a lot on like glitching out sounds and, hmm. and also like like fast tempo fast and tempo beats. and then like also like feeling the the soundscape as well hmm. i think it serves a similar purpose of amping you up and then not giving you catharsis yes because there are scenes of joe walking down a corridor about do some shit and then the score is amping up mm-hmm. and then nothing happens right like there's a bunch of stuff all oh, like he just goes shopping you know <laughs> there's a bit of that and i think it's part of that effort to kind of discombobulate you a little bit mm-hmm. kind of using the tropes of the vigilante thriller to make you feel like it's going to a certain place and then not going there mm. Mm. in a way the opening scene promises a movie that is more similar to taxi driver than it ends up being it lures us in with the genre trappings and literally seeing the hotel hallways through joe's direct optical perspective before moving away from that I keep coming back to how she made a specifically unsatisfying movie, which is a bold choice. <laughs> a very bold choice. I think that's what's so special about it. It's wildly unsatisfying. And I wish that more movies were deliberate about their depiction of violence mm-hmm. as this one is. Yeah. It's always so fun uh, watching art house directors and auteurs take on more genre flicks because... More often than not, their version of a genre flick is a commentary on the genre or on the, <laughs> mm. the, the people that consume those flicks. Or maybe less of the people who watch those movies as the ways in which those movies are consumed. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. And whether it is, I don't know, a, a, a violent movie or, or a musical or whatever, it is always very interesting because popular cinema and art house cinema you're operating in like two different spheres but the theater that which you go to watch these movies is is the same most (laughs) of the time so when you have that overlap in the venn diagram it is really great that's my favorite space to be you know yeah it's also when populist directors try to make art house movies i think it is maybe a a miss most of the time but i think it's also still very interesting to see Hmm. i mean i don't want to create a false dichotomy of you know art films and populist and mainstream cinema but yeah that so-called middle ground really is where the most interesting stuff happens yeah or at least the stuff that I'm, i'm most interested in because they get to be fun and inviting or using genre conventions to pull you in and then upending those genre conventions right i i think about like wholesale Sien's the assassin yeah i which i have very vague memory of but like it felt like another one of those moments where he was trying to do usia in a very different art house way and i'm trying to think of other examples like high life oh yeah high i haven't life? seen it but oh boy <laughs> i think that would fit into that into that, that definitely little fits into that yeah. you're definitely right <laughs> i was thinking about the speed of this film hmm. and how despite being 90 minutes, it's a film that in a sense moves slowly. I mean that in terms of what's happening within a single shot. Hmm. She really takes her time with action. One example is Joe squishing the jelly bean for some reason for me. And I mean, you have the slow motion shots underwater. 
And every time Joel walks around like different spaces, he does it very, very slowly. And there's a kind of glacial quality to movement in this, which seems to be at odds with the genre that she's playing with. Mm. And I think those moments of like near stillness or like slow moving really set a certain tone to Joe's mood. Like he is processing what's going on. And I really like that she gives you time, even in something that feels like it's supposed to be an action movie. Like she's giving you more time to contemplate details and spaces and most importantly, her character itself. I like that. There is both patience and propulsiveness to the thing. Mm. I really loved those really quiet moments where Joe sings. I think that happens like mm. three times in the movie. He sings with his mom. He sings by himself in front of the the mirror as he's about to like do the hit on the the prostitution house. And then the 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 third time where he sings is he sings with the with the guy who killed his mom um, mm. on the floor. And I think there are very very few moments where he's like outwardly open with other people. And just shows his interiority through the way that he acts and the way that he sings. And those really crushed me this time around. Mm. <laughs> More so than, than a lot of other moments in the movie. That's another thing that makes You Were Never Really Here for me is Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Yeah. I was reading a 2016 draft of the script. And there are some very important differences from the script to the screen. For example, when Joe visits McCleary... When McCleary suggests that they go onto his boat together to have steaks and beer, in the script, Joe flips McCleary off. Mm. In the movie, Joe looks up from a jelly bean and says, what? The entire home scene where Joe is just having downtime with his mom early on in the movie is almost entirely devised. The relationship seems a bit more combative on the page and more tense. But in the movie, home is the place of comfort and calm Mm -hmm. for Joe. That's such an important distinction. I think that was created entirely on set by Ramsey and Phoenix's collaboration. What a great director-actor pair this was. So good. And we have to remember that the the director side of it is very important. Yes. I hadn't rewatched this movie since Joker came out. And Mm -hmm. Joaquin in Joker is, yeah, he's selling it. He's he's selling it but it's the vision that the writer director has of the character that they they want to sell to you is the most important thing because like any good actor will take what you give them and run with it but if what you give an actor is sort of like a half-baked like one-sided view of the character which in my opinion was what joker was you 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 are left with wanting more whereas when ramsey and phoenix work together to construct joe there is so much clarity as to how he is feeling in every moment even though he doesn't really express much from his face or even through his like body because he he's very stocky in this movie and he's, I, I, he's I think going he, full dad bod he really goes full <laughs> dad bod like and full he... like hunky dad bod you know what i mean <laughs> like chunky yeah he's 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 just like slab of meat yeah. coming at you that's what it looks like but the way he moves you you get a really strong sense of how he feels and how he sees himself in the world especially the mansion scene when he's yeah. topless like yeah. the physical acting there is very strong yeah the DP Tom Townen describes how Joe in 
Ramsey's conception before the movie was more muscly and and Phoenix seems like wanted to take the character in a more as Townen says lardy direction <laughs> he uses that word not my word lardy the the body works Ugh, that sounds weird mm-hmm. yeah it, it does told, the it body works. does work it does work I wanted to ask about the girl that they find at the first prostitution house the woman? No, the girl that walks out of one of those rooms that he doesn't save. Because he yeah. picks up Nina and then there's another girl who just comes out, sits in the corridor and then he leaves her behind. Mm-hmm. What do y'all make of that? Like, it's just a huge question mark for me. I'm just like, what? Something that happens in the script that doesn't in the movie is, do you remember the older woman who comes into Nina's room with the cell phone? Mm. Yes. So she's what the script calls the big sister. I think the woman who is in charge of the girls in the house. Mm-hmm. And... In the script, Joe has her call the police and say, I heard gunshots. So I think Mm -hmm. the idea is that the whole house is going to get busted. I see. But that doesn't happen in the movie. And you get the police sirens. That's all she gives you, I think, right after the scene. Yeah. I guess the idea is that Joe was just there to do his job to save Nina. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely is uncomfortable and maybe even works against the character to see that. A little bit. Because it was confusing to see. And that girl kind of walks out of that room like ghost yeah you know and then she sits at the end of the corridor kind of like a ghost and like you barely register her because she's wearing white and has blonde hair and she's just in the depth of the frame like quite Mm -hmm. small Mm -hmm. just kind of there i found it a little bit of an odd choice but maybe it was a choice to cut for economy of the film and it wasn't important yeah but maybe but i think it is also showing that he it's still like a job yeah Hmm. that's kind of my takeaway from that too right like i think at least at that point in the movie Mm -hmm. um it is still just a job for him right um Hmm. before it gets to be something more Hmm. or even as a reminder that there are broader effects of this prostitution ring than just nina it Hmm. sort of widens out the world and maybe purposefully leaves you with this unresolved thought lingering that disturbs you and reminds you of the real world analog of this type of institution mm. <laughs> i feel like we should have one more note that that's a dark thing yeah, to end on. yeah we should have a, another note <laughs> yeah it was really great watching it for a uh, third time I, I felt like it was just as impactful mm. to me and that usually isn't the case with movies that are so like visceral and in how you're supposed to be feeling and taking in the the images and the sounds that you're getting but i think that's a testament to Lynn ramsey as a stylist and also as a storyteller mm. and i'm excited to watch we need to talk about kevin because mm-hmm. it's been so high up on my watch list for so long and <laughs> long time coming I keep coming back to thinking about the film as a formal exercise, which sounds like a slight dig at it, but isn't really, because it feels like a very strong experiment in Ramsey going into this genre of cinema. And so many of the choices seem to stem from trying to figure out how to do this differently with a different objective. I had a thought, which was that I was trying to remember scenes from the film as I was watching it, and realizing that oh yeah i don't have memories of the violent scenes because the violent scenes were kind of cut up and made differently from how they were and i just (laughs) was trying to remember it as a violent movie but it isn't necessarily the violent movie i thought it was Mm. even in my memory and i think it was interesting trying to hold that film in my head because it's so different the movie is significant because of what it isn't yes which is a very interesting space to be in 
And I think it challenges you to think about how to approach different kinds of stories and genres, not just this action thriller type, in different ways. And that's kind of my my kind of takeaway from watching it again. (laughs) Now I'm trying to think of what are the givens that we have for, say, a romantic comedy. Mm. And then who's the Ramsey doing romantic comedy differently? Johnny Cho! I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of pulling me into a lot of like, hmm, emoji spaces. <laughs> I love how you had to say emoji. <laughs> you could have just say, hmm, spaces. Because <laughs> hmm, emoji has that hand on your chin <laughs> look, which I'm trying to convey. <laughs> I don't have the power of image here. <laughs> yes. That will be an excellent jumping off point for we need to talk about Kevin. And I want to leave us with one last quotation from the editor of You Were Never Really Here, Joe Beanie, as a way of bridging into next week's conversation. Beanie says, quote, It's this idea of retrospective emotion for an audience. Everything is present tense in film. Everything is now. Everything is happening in front of you. You're with him in the moment, but you're also thinking about all the shit that's happened to him up until then. You have to have time to do that. As an editor, you have to be really aware of emotional time, end quote. This is something that Ramsey is a master at and that we're absolutely going to be digging into more on next week's episode about We Need to Talk About Kevin. Sweet. Also wanted to shout out that the information that I got on You Were Never Really Here for this episode came in large part from a publication by Seventh Row. We're going to link to that publication in the description of this episode. You can find this really excellent ebook for purchase online. Also, I bought this ebook for this episode, and that makes this our most expensive deep cut episode to date. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to your podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Was this podcast really here? Oh, (laughs) you were never really beer, bro. (laughs) It feels like he should have drunk one beer in this film, but he didn't. (laughs) You know what I mean? say something what was it uh can't remember they're inviting you in through genre conventions it was something else but it's okay <laughs> it was like something else not here but here <laughs> you were not really there but you were there <laughs> yeah oh <laughs>